Welcome to the Give Back Economy, a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise. Now with your host, Peter Miller. Welcome back, and today we have a very interesting social innovator from uh, close to Dallas, Texas. Her name is Darren, and uh, we're going to explore her background and the organization that she is working with right now, and it's a very interesting situation. So welcome, Darren. Good morning, Peter. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation together. Okay, great. So tell us a little bit about your academic background first. Well, that's kind of a short story. I have just the one bachelor's degree from Texas A&M University, and uh, my degree was in journalism. And uh, a very good football team. Very good football team, yes. Giggle Maggies. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us about your work background. You know, um, I always wanted to be in journalism. In fact, I grew up um, about twenty a 20-minute 20 car ride away from NASA, the Johnson Space Center, just outside of Houston. And so, uh, you know, I was born in 1965, so by the time the, uh, the Apollo program was really up and going, every little boy and little girl my age was fascinated by the space program. And I still am to this day. And I can remember thinking when other little boys and girls wanted to be a nurse or a teacher or a firefighter, I wanted to be the first woman journalist in space. And so from that time forward, I, I started on my school paper in the seventh grade. Um, I went right on through, never changed my major, never looked left nor right um, all the way through my um through through my college years, and um, I did divert a little bit into the world of public relations and marketing. So that is kind of how my um, my career trajectory went after that. <clears throat> I will say that to this day, I continue to use my skills as um, a journalist in terms of communicating clear messaging, editing, you know, that sort of thing. But um, definitely went more in the direction of marketing, advertising, and then in more recent years, um, sales and um, social media, content marketing, that sort of thing. And it serves me well to this day in this work, certainly in helping um, other social enterprises uh, get their businesses off the ground. I'm certainly a go-to person for marketing messages. So that has continued. But that's not what you're famous for you're famous <laughs> for the true. organizations that you got involved in true and but i i came to most of the nonprofit and uh, the work that i'm doing now through the marketing door i guess i should say so uh for example when i began working with the uh, faith-based nonprofit the missional wisdom foundation was the name of it several years ago it was to do their marketing and um, you know I kind of got the bug for it and I, I tell the story that the foundation was in the business of uh, facilitating and gathering intentional Christian community that lived in houses together in the Dallas area and then kind of throughout Texas and um, we did a number of things we did pilgrimages we did um, kind of a non-seminary academy and things like that so i was involved in the marketing of all that and when you're involved in marketing you really 
get very deeply into understanding, you know, what is it we're doing here and how do we communicate it effectively? Especially when you ask me about my academic background, of course, I was working with people with a laundry list of degrees, PhDs and things like that. And, you know, I just had my one. So I was often doing, <coughs> excuse me, I say I, I was the Ecclesi speak translator <laughs> because so often the folks I was working with would speak in, um, you know, kind of this seminary language. So getting to know that, you know, what was really going on and translating it for folks who hadn't been to seminary was a big part of what I did. And of course, I, I just began to fell in, fall in love with the concept of working together, being together, all that sort of thing. At that time, I was um, officing because we were a, a dispersed workforce, you know, we, we were all over the place. And so people worked out of their homes that didn't work well for me. So I found out about this co-working space in downtown Dallas called The Grove, which had actually been launched by a couple of pastors, but it did not have any sort of overt religious um, atmosphere about it. Um, but I loved working there. And people would often say, well, do you live in one of these intentional communities? And I was like, no, 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 no. I live outside of Dallas with my wife and our kids and our dogs, and, you know, it's just not something that would work for me. But I work in intentional community. So I would say that over and over and over again. So one summer, the summer of 2014, I was on the island of Iona after doing a pilgrimage, walking the way of St. Cuthbert across Scotland. And on the Isle of Iona, it, that's where I had my inspiration that – Working in intentional community is something we should be doing. We should be in the business of co-working. And I went to the leadership of the organization and said, hey, here's what I want to do. They said, yep, you're right. Let's do that. And so as soon as I came back that September, we had already begun partnering with a United Methodist Church, a kind of a legacy church in Dallas called White Rock UMC. And they had come to us because we were known for doing innovative things with old churches and uh, repurposing space and things like that. So we went to them with this idea and they, they were aware of the Grove. They'd been there many times and they said, oh yeah, let's do that. So that launched the very first co-working space and that, Peter, is what I'm known for. <laughs> so from that time to this, I have um, done three church launches that I was directly hands-on uh, working with, and then others that I've consulted with as well. So can you tell us uh, a little bit more about these co-working spaces and communities of faith? Uh, a couple sure of examples can. would probably be best. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, as you and your audience are aware, we have had a decline in church, um, you know, mainline denominations we're talking about here, in church attendance, um, and yet the buildings are still there, right? Big buildings. For example, one that I'm working with, or, or let's just go down the line, the first one was a 67,000 square foot uh, space on a kind of uh, inner, not inner city, but within the city campus. It was a suburb at one time but the city kind of, you know, engulfed it and um, lots and lots and lots of assets. And this is something that we see over and over again. So we'll have an industrial kitchen. You'll have a big stage. You'll have big rooms, small rooms, outdoor space, full court basketball gyms. I mean, all of these things. I mean, here in Texas, we do it big, as you know. By the way, are you closed captioning this for folks who 
will have trouble with my accent. <laughs> um, so oh, you're you know, bi- you're bilingual. You speak a little Canadian. I, I speak a. a. <laughs> so um, and then the second space was thirty-seven thousand square feet on quite a bit of. Um, land, a, a lot of a lot of um, big rolling lawn, and even room for a dog park, that sort of thing. But again, a commercial kitchen, big chapel, little chapel, big fellowship hall, all that sort of thing. And now I've just launched a project in, in Plano, Texas, which is a suburb north of Dallas, that is actually a campus of 100,000 square feet on 36 acres. So what this what happens when somebody with some imagination and some creativity, like the team that I bring in, starts to run wild and play in a space like that, it really begins to open your mind and open your eyes and even helps the congregation see their space, first of all, as an asset, not a liability, and second of all, just as a wonderland of possibilities. So then our challenge and the the type of work that I do is to help them reframe that for themselves, for their communities in a way that brings in a spirit of improvisation. And so what do we do when we have, when we are doing improv, when we're on stage with another person and we're making it up as we go along, our attitude is that we say yes and to everything that our partner says, right? So we translate that in the work that we do to everything that walks through the door. Our default position is going to be yes. And let's sit down and talk about what that's going to look like. So, for example, um, at Central Westside, which was at Central Christian Church of Dallas, you know, the very first two uh, members that walked through the door, one was a Jewish bagel maker, and the second one was the director of a flamenco fusion dance company. Now, I got to tell you, Peter, I did not have those two things on my bingo card of what I thought might walk through the door. But again, if your default is yes and, then you say yes. And what kind of floor are you going to need to do flamenco? And how much noise does that make? And how are we going to navigate all that? But then you begin to work it out together, and it becomes this really creative, amazing space that is multidisciplinary. It's multi, multi-generational. It's certainly multi-faith. And uh, it just really brings together you know, all these different thought processes and attitudes and you know, stances of, of who you are and how you are in the world. And I got to tell you, that's a big shift for a lot of faith communities, churches, congregations, that if we're being honest, the folks that are still there as part of the church are the, the folks that are older. They've kind of been doing this the way they've been doing it for a really long time. Um, the neighborhood that they inhabit has changed substantially from when the church was founded you know, 30, 40, 50, 70 years ago. And there's a real question as to whether they have continued that multifaceted loving thy neighbor, which means being in authentic relationship with your neighbor. Um, because they kind of just hoped that it would sort of maybe get back to the way it was. And now they've come along to where they realize that they need to change and they really want to change. 
as long as they don't have to change. <laughs> so that is um, a big part of our work is inviting them into the work, helping them see where their place is in it and, and how they fit into it. And um, so that we can be one big happy. And I can tell you that it's hard work. It really is. It's um, there's, there's misunderstanding, there's confusion, there's um, suspicion, there's, um, you know, antagonism, you know, all, there's all the things. And then there's some, there's some folks that, you know, really, they get a spark about it and, uh, and they really see how it is um, gospel work that they feel like they haven't done in a really long time when we sort of animated our churches in the way of a country club or a private club or a social club rather than, um, you know, buckling down and, and doing the work of discipleship. And um, so we really bring bring all those things to bear in, in the work that we do. Did I answer your question? I'm not sure I did. <laughs> it, it did. <laughs> so a couple of questions come from that. Do you do anything <laughs> with the uh, property outside the building? Do we such, do anything with the property outside the building? Such as agri-hood. Like on the agri-hood. Oh, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. As a matter of fact, um, actually, before we got to the very first um, location at White Rock UMC, and it was one of the reasons that we were so interested in working with them, was um, they had taken a big chunk of their parking lot, right? They didn't have a lot of land because they'd paved it off. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I'm so sorry. They had paved over quite a bit of their of their property for parking, and they didn't really need that much parking anymore. So they had gone in and built raised beds on the parking lot to create a really large, vibrant community garden. This is the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And it, I've never seen it again where folks have done raised beds on a parking lot. And it's it's absolutely amazing so uh and we were a big part of that and we brought that spirit even uh, the space that we animated was down in a, in a basement so we picked up where they left off and worked with their gardeners to uh, make sure that we were composting for all of the um you know for food waste that was coming out of the industrial kitchen we planted a big herb garden right there as you walked in the door so that folks could have fresh mint and fresh basil for their teas and for our lunches and things like that. We planted a salad garden so that, um, so it, you know, it was kind of small plot gardening, but then um, we got to know a, um, a coworker and a, a collaborator who's a, who's a dear collaborator of mine still, Tiffany Lachey, who is a black farming activist. And she really helped us learn a whole lot about urban gardening and agrihood. And um, a couple of the things that she taught us that I carry forward um, in Dallas, like many big cities, we have areas that are often referred to as food deserts. And Tiffany taught me that, no, there are not food deserts. There's food apartheid because people are making, you know, co corporations that are putting full service grocery stores in certain places are making decisions about where they put those. And so that's why folks in some parts of our, our area, their choices for shopping for food for their families are a gas station and a liquor store, a convenience store. Um, so that's one thing that she taught us. Another thing she taught us was that um, 
we talk a lot about food security. That's a big issue. That's a term that you'll hear around. And she said, no, families don't want food security. They want food sovereignty. And that really changes the power dynamics. They don't want it just just barely surviving. They want choices, just like all of our families have. When a, when a mom is trying to feed her children, she wants it to be on her terms, and she wants lots of choices to do it. She doesn't want a mandate from someone to keep her just barely above survival with food that doesn't make sense for her family. So these are the kinds of collaborators that we would bring into a space. And when we, when we would uh, introduce a new topic like, hey, let's explore an agrihood. We never assume ever, because we, we never do, that we know what we're talking about. We are going to pull in the people who are taking the whole concept to another level. We're going to bring in the tech person, the real estate person, the clergy person, the, the neighborhood person of peace, we call it. You might call them a gadfly, somebody who just knows everything that's going on in the neighborhood. We want to ask them what they think. We want to do that prototyping and observing to find out what's going on. So um, so urban farming, agrihood, community gardening, that sort of thing, that would be a really great example of how that happens in the spaces. So obviously engaging with the community is absolutely essential in terms of the projects that you undertake. Can you talk about that a little bit? <clears throat> It's everything, Peter. It is absolutely everything. Um, it also makes the work a little more difficult because, you know, I told you I've just started a launch and the very first thing I do is, you know, I walk in presenting myself as this expert and what I am, what I am expert in is knowing what I don't know. So the very first thing I say, I was like, here, sign this contract. We're going to do this work together. And I'm going to tell you how much I don't know. And I'm going to tell you how much you don't know. And we're going to discover this together. So there's no way to walk in with a 14-point strategic plan that says, hey, here, here's how this thing is going to go. I have some assumptions. I have some hunches. I have some things that we might begin to explore together. But until you begin to gather the folks in the neighborhood, and that means that if you're in a room where everybody looks like you, <laughs> your agenda just changed. Because I guarantee your everybody in your neighborhood does not look just like you. And if we have work to do in the area of engaging with folks who don't look like us, don't sound like us, haven't been there for 50 years, then that's the first bit of work we're going to do. And we have to let the external community, the greater community outside of the church know that this really is for them. It's not for us. The churches were put in place to serve the neighborhood, not the other way around. And somehow we kind of lost our way on that. So uh, beginning to gather, it's, and you asked, you said earlier um, that we might talk about why I named my business what I did. It's called Table Coworking because the very first thing we do is have lunch. It is just that simple. It costs nothing. Usually it's a potluck lunch. Right now, during the time of COVID, we're bringing brown bag lunches and not sharing, which I don't like, but we're going to get through this together. And it's just as simple as that. And, and the lunch has no agenda, none whatsoever, other than explaining, hey, here's kind of the some of the things that we're thinking about. Let's walk around the building together. What would you do with this space? Do you have any ideas? 
what are you dreaming of? What are you cooking up? What are you working on? And so we're asking and asking and asking questions. And it doesn't take very long before the conversation begins to flow, the ideas begin to follow, and some things begin to, some connections begin to be made. And then you do it over and over and over again. So for us for right now, it's every Tuesday. Tomorrow, Tuesday, we'll do it. 12.15, we get together for what we call a check-in. And it's a technique that we've learned from our brothers and sisters in the recovery movement. And we say, hi, my name is Darren. And everybody says, hi, Darren. And we do it every single time. And it's a way to reinforce our names. And then we give our 30-second elevator speech. So we say it over and over and over again every week. So people begin to like they can recite your elevator speech to you, which is amazing, right? And um, or if you change it a little bit, people say like, oh, you changed what you were saying. I'm not sure that works. (laughs) So you get that feedback. And then we just have a time of just conversation. And, you know, there was a time when I um, would try to well, let's have an open-ended question and go around and everybody do the open-ended question. And I found that that was far less effective than just letting people get to know each other. And um, so that's the entry that anybody that wants to come see the space, that's great. You can come, but you're going to come to lunch with us first. So um, we keep it really simple. It's not fancy. In fact, when it gets too fancy, I um, talk about the sacred principle of rice and beans We want it to be accessible for everyone, so we don't want anybody to feel like they they can't come because they don't have something to bring, or uh, so we'll do like a pot of rice and beans because rice and beans cuts across most cultures, and uh, you know what's cheaper than rice and beans? Nothing. Nothing is cheaper than rice and beans. So. so that's what we do. We, we keep it accessible. We keep it light. We keep it easy. And we let the magic happen. You know, we, we, we pull up a chair for the Holy Spirit and she does what she does, you know. So I don't, I don't have to program it. I can, I can just hand that off, as we say. So that's what we do. So one of the challenges I see is you deal with very large projects. Where does all the money come to support those projects? That's a great question. So, um, yes, they're large projects. However, I, um, I have pivoted uh, my thinking around how we do this. So we'll start with the first one. The first one, again, I said that it was, um, it was taken on and it was actually wholly owned by the nonprofit foundation that I was working for, which had a single funder. It was a, a wonderful gentleman named Larry Duggins who had um, – made a whole bunch of money on Wall Street, and now he was uh, doing social enterprise. And so he, uh, he put up most of the money, and we did fundraising as well. We, did, we applied for grants and things like that. Um, but we really went in and spent money, like a lot of money, because we converted the space from a dusty old dirty ba- you know, basement to a beautiful, vibrant, you know, we did the lighting, we did some plumbing, we did, you know, all of those things. And then, you know, sat around, tapped our toe and waited for folks to come through the door and uh, pay for memberships so that uh, we could, you know, reimburse what, what we had spent. When I went to the second location, I decided that for me, for the work that I was going to do, that model was neither uh, sustainable, replicable, nor scalable because 
if step one on a project is, hey, go find a really, really wealthy guy, that kind of will set you back a little bit. So what could we do where we look at the existing assets of the, of the space, of the church, and work with what we've got and kind of go with the lean methodology concept of minimum viable product, which, um, in, which we reframe a little bit to minimum viable benefit. So how can we go along? Because what do churches have? Churches have, they, they have heat and AC, usually, if they're still functioning. They got chairs and tables. They've got Wi-Fi. They got coffee. They have somebody who will let you in the door, right? So, <coughs> excuse me, again, minimum viable benefit. So how can we take that and then little by little, raising a little, spending a little, raising a little, spending a little, Make it sustainable for the long term. And that's what we did at um, Central Christian Church of Dallas. And um, that model seems to, to work much better uh, in terms of dipping a toe in the project um, as you go along. Now, at uh, Plano, United Methodist Church that I'm working with now, um, they have a lot of assets, lots and lots. It's a, it's a big, big, fairly well-funded church. So um, their board of trustees uh, set aside um, a nice chunk of change to work with, and, and we're just eating away at it. We're not, you know, not going in and saying we're going to spend all this, but we've done a little bit. You know, we've, um, it, I do find that if you take a Sunday school class, for example, and create kind of a prototype in there, it helps folks to envision what it is you're doing here and what they could come along and do. But always with an eye towards sustainability. Um, this is not an effort that is going to solve your church's budget woes. It's just not. It's also not an effort that's going to put rear ends in your seats on Sunday mornings. It's just not a focus of the work. It's about being the church Monday through Friday. And um, so, but it does need to be sustainable. And so the revenue model is, um, it's like joining a gym. It's a membership model. So folks pay a monthly fee for their space. And so it can be um, open space, like an open plan where they can sit wherever they want or for a little bit higher membership model. They might have what we call a dedicated desk, which means this is my desk. Nobody else sit here. I know that when I come in in the morning, my desk is going to be available all the way up to a private office, which could be for an individual, a small team, a small nonprofit, that sort of thing. So, for example, at, um, at this church in Plano, they have 19 Sunday school classrooms that are available to repurpose. And not all of them. I mean, we're, we're going to do them little by little. But then we get into the business of, okay, this room needs to be modular because we need to convert it to Sunday school class on Sunday. And what does that look like? Okay, we're going to put everything on wheels. And so um, there's just a lot of space planning and space animation that, that follows around that. So. And the answer to your question, you know, as we go along for this particular project, we probably will be applying for some grant money. We'll keep going back to the Board of Trustees and make our case to say, hey, we need another pocket of money and here's why. Here's another thing that we need. Um, but for the most part, it can be a fairly minimal outlay of cash in order to uh, to do this kind of thing. And I mean, obviously I like to get paid for my work. I, I have consulting fees, but you can also, um, I have an online group that you can be a part of. And for very little money, you know, we have a peer, peer consulting 
peer coaching thing where we can, you know, talk you through this process. Um, so does that, I hope that answers your question. It does. Darren, we're reaching our time. The, the most important thing is how do people find your website and what it is and uh, how do they connect with you? Wonderful. Yes. So my website is tablecoworking.com. And then you can find me on all the socials at Table Coworking. And uh, you can connect with me right there. And I would um, encourage you, if you're interested in, in this sort of thing, once you get to Table Coworking, there's a link to a mighty network that we have called Big Table. So it's mighty network slash big table. You'll see a link at tablecoworking.com. And every Friday, I have a virtual potluck lunch that everyone's invited to participate in. It's it's free. It's it's the answer to the question, can I pick your brain, which I get a lot. <laughs> so um, this is every Friday at 12 o'clock noon Central Time, at Central Dallas Time. And it's just an, an open forum, uh, no dumb questions. Ask all, and The questions seem to be kind of the same over and over. So there might be folks there, or if you want to invite your entire team or church committee, that kind of thing. Um, that's really the best way to, to sit down with me. And you'll find links to that also at tablecoworking.com. So today we've had the opportunity, and I stress the opportunity, to hear a very interesting story of an innovator and a creative person. Thank you for your time today, Darren. Thank you so much, Peter, and I look forward to connecting with your audience.